to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Welcome, everybody. A number of things I want to get to in this particular episode, but first I want to mention that I've written this month's Substack article in the American Classroom, and it's titled The Distraction Dilemma. And uh, I, I basically discuss a number of different things, but basically, again, how distraction within the workplace has become more and more rampant, in particular at the hands of bosses and workplace administrators, in particular in the, in the K-12 and university settings. They are ramping up the panic and geopolitical panic in a way that they never have before, even with the, again, casual use of emails and sort of keeping everybody in a constant state of fear. And I bring up some examples within that article. So please bounce over to the American Classroom Substack and check out the latest there, again titled The Distraction Dilemma. And you can subscribe for free. I know people charge for other people to uh, read their Substack articles. I don't. Everything is free. And uh, again, if you type in your email at the bottom there, then um, you can even get the updates as I as I release them. So just wanted to let you know that that's out there and that's available if you're interested in giving that a read. A um, few articles I want to go over and then a couple of uh, geopolitical things, a couple of jab things, and then I want to end with a history lesson. That was a letter written from a German who grew up in Germany back before uh, World War II. Again, the distortion of history is an abomination, in my opinion. And uh, it's happening right now, given a number of things that are going on. But we'll get to that a little bit later. First off, though, I want to mention this story. This was pretty ridiculous, I thought. Uh, this comes from iHeartRadio, and apparently iHeartRadio is now in the news business and putting out news articles from time to time as well. But this is titled, Bus Driver Allegedly Paid Students to Swab Their Cheeks for COVID Tests. Because again, at this particular stage, why not? It says, quote, a school, bus, a school bus driver has been suspended after reports that she gave students $5 apiece to take what she claimed was a COVID test. Several students from Ridge Road Middle School told their parents about what was happening, prompting an investigation by the Charlotte Mecklenburg, I'm saying that right, Mecklenburg School District. Parent Dawn Thompson told WCNC that she knew something wasn't right when her daughter told her that the bus driver asked her to swab her cheek. Quote, and immediately I said, COVID test? And she said, yeah, in my cheek. And I said, COVID test is not done in your cheek, Thompson told the news station. Dynasty Davis told WRAL that the same thing happened to her. She gave me a Q-tip and maybe and made me swab my mouth when I was done. I put it in the cylinder and gave it to her. She gave me $5, this sixth grader said. Her mother, Monet Davis, was outraged about what happened. Quote, as a minor, she was taken advantage of and she shouldn't have done anything to my child without parental consent. Oh, Miss, Miss Davis or Mrs. Davis, whatever has been done to your child this entire time has been done without their consent and yours. Anywho, it says, quote, her trust for her bus driver, it was taken advantage of. My daughter trusted her because of the position she was in. I trusted her because of the position she was in, Davis said. 
Both parents have filed a police report and want to know why the bus driver took cheek swabs of their children. Davis suggested the bus driver was collecting the children's DNA. Clearly. I don't know why she would want to get their DNA. I don't know what she's going to use it for. Whether it's going to be some kind of study, said Thompson. (laughs) Highly unlikely. Uh, Immediately in my mind, I'm thinking, are you trying to kidnap my child? I don't know. The school district issued a statement regarding the incident. Quote, the bus driver is suspended and an investigation is ongoing. The district spokesperson said. The alleged incident appears to be... An individual acting in an unauthorized manner outside of assigned duties and without the district or school having prior knowledge, you don't say, unquote. No kidding. No kidding. And again, DNA harvesting possibly could be that the bus driver was trying to um, prove in some weird way that uh, students were testing positive. I don't know. You know, the jabbed are making... uh, Awfully strange decisions these days, and I don't think that's going to get better with time. That's just a hunch I have, but who knows? I could be wrong. Uh, Here's the next one. This was tossed to me by Jesse James, and this is an interesting one too, I think. And it really does show sort of the larger picture of everything that's been going on, in particular regarding the workplace bullying that's taking place, but the administrative overreach when it comes to parents. And communicating with parents or not communicating with parents, and then before you know it, you have these malicious attacks on parents at the hands of school administrators. So this comes from uh, clickondetroit.com. It's titled, Mother at Center of Rochester Community Schools Social Media Scandal Speaks Out. Says parents complained of bullying by the administrator before Elena Diverno's lawsuit. I'm going to play the audio here. Give this a listen. Tonight, the parent at the center of a federal lawsuit against the Rochester School District is telling her story after school officials reached out to her employer to complain about her criticism of the school district. Laura McDonald, live in Rochester right now. Mar, there's a settlement that has been signed. That's right, Devin, and Elena Dinverno will be getting a check from the Rochester Community Schools. Now, the settlement says she can't divulge how much that check is. One thing's for sure, though, her lawsuit has opened an entire can of worms up here as far as how parents say they have been bullied. To use the energy and money and time for something like this, when truly none of us have been doing anything wrong, all we wanted to do was be heard. And it's just sad. What Dinverno is referring to is what was discovered during depositions in her case, that twice Rochester schools contacted parents' employers, all because they were vocal on social media with their dissatisfaction, not only with no in-person school option, but the way the district was doing online learning. She says she lost her job as the marketing director at Blake's Art Cider because of it. Uh, I was made aware that someone had contacted them from the board. Um, Those are the words that they had used and that someone had let them know that I was participating in a page that was, uh, they deemed as threatening behavior. What was so threatening? Dinverno asked fellow parents to send quick video clips of the struggles their children were having to the school board. In depositions, it was discovered it was Deputy Superintendent Debbie Fragameni who called Blake's. 
What else was discovered? The district had staff monitor Facebook for comments. Those parents who were vocal had their comments screenshotted and reports were made about them, listing how many children they had in the schools and other personal info to be passed out to school board members. And I just felt violated, um, you know, that my rights had been violated when I knew that I hadn't done anything wrong, that someone would go to that length to to try and stop a citizen just from using their voice. In a statement, the school district says as a part of the settlement, it cannot discuss terms, but does say, quote, as a responsible and respectful listener, we pay attention to newspaper, radio, TV news, and social media to make sure we are responsive to the community. When Denverno sent a letter to the school board asking why anyone would contact her employer, she was then sent a cease and desist letter, something that district has done to other parents. These letters of intimidation were definitely a tactic to try and silence many of us um, and also to paint us as maybe unstable parents, crazy parents. Dinverno had enough and took her case to well-respected employment attorney Deborah Gordon. I'm so proud of her. I've, I've said this to juries over the years. If it wasn't for private people that had the guts and the wherewithal to enforce these laws here the Constitution, none of this would happen. Back here live already this week, just on Monday, there was a work session of the school board and it ended up being packed with parents, about 75 people in all, with parents coming to the podium telling the school board that any administrator who was involved in this whole fiasco should be fired and any school board member who was complicit ought to resign. We're live in Rochester tonight. I'm Mara McDonald, Local 4. I cannot tell you how much I love this story. I can't tell you how much I love it. I have a smile on my face from ear to ear. It just tickles me in all the right places. I've got, I have to tell you, this is just so good. It's so classic. You, I'm not. I don't. I don't think I'm going to be able to get to every single point I wanted to here with this particular story. First of all, it's Michigan, and it's the Detroit area, so that should be, you know, that should be enough for a lot of people to pretty much figure out what's going on. Now, apparently, communicating with other parents about what's going on in a school district is perceived as a crime by lunatics within K-12 school districts. That's absolutely hilarious to me. The retribution, of course, is where they got in trouble. The workplace retribution. Calling a, calling a parent's employer to lie about them communicating in an online environment about concerns that they have with other parents regarding the learning of their children within that school district, that's next level. That's, that's Bolshevik tactic, as I've been over before. That's next level. Uh, absolutely incredible that they would make that move. Highly illegal. I'm sure they got paid out. They lost their job, for God's sakes. Uh, hopefully they were rehired. But even so, um, I hope that settlement was massive, whatever it was. They openly admitted, the school district openly admitted that they received their information, and this is the kicker, they received their information and decision-making process from television and social media. 
Oh my God. Again, it ties directly into the Substack article that I just recently wrote. Same kinds of things. This is the environment. They are believing mainstream media and then making their decisions and basing their decisions off of what they hear on the radio, television, and social media. It cannot be a more blatant admission of ignorance and stupidity. It's incredible that they would actually say that. Well, we watch the nightly news, and that's how we figure out how to do stuff. And we saw Stephen Colbert late at night on a late-night talk show that he hosts, and he said things, so they must be real. Derp, derp, derp. This is their decision-making process. These are K-12 school administrators. These are elected, I mean, well, the assistant superintendent's not an elected official. She's clearly dumber in a bag of forks. But the fact is, is that even elected officials do that very thing. Even, again, school board members do, the, do that very thing. Blows me away. Absolutely blows me away. And yeah, heaven forbid, they got caught in not only lying to this woman's employer about her involvement in this student group and sharing their concerns and whatever, completely, I mean, the act of calling the employers illegal, of course, and lying about it, but being associated with a social media group and sharing concerns, there's nothing illegal about that. There's nothing wrong about that. They just figured that they'd take this childish tactic. These are adults, ladies and gentlemen. I think that's an even bigger point. These are just adults. They're supposed to be anyway. They're of adult age. That's more specific. They're of adult age, but they clearly lack adult behaviors because those are the behaviors of a child. And it's typically the leftist child that behaves such a way. Again, if they were really transparent, as they so readily say, and are concerned with the learning and safety of all children, don't you think that all they would have to do is have a public meeting? and actually have a dialogue back and forth with parents. You see this notion, and it's a wide-held, widely observed phenomenon that exists. The business of having them, having school boards not communicate back when a parent asks a question. They don't even do it, by the way, over email. The open records request that I've done has proven that where even school board members were saying things openly to the superintendent like, oh, by the way, when there's a parent who emails us and has a concern, I just wanted to let you know that I'm not going to respond to any of their emails. So I'm going to let the superintendent, I'm going to let you handle that. And the superintendent goes, yeah, okay, no problem. And then the superintendent just replies to these parents with the same scripted paragraph. It's two or three sentences. Thank you for your concern. We've heard what you've had to say, blah, blah, blah. And then that's it. There's no actual back and forth. There's no dialogue. Because there can't be. Because they'll get caught being stupid. And they can't have that. And they don't want that. And they'll do whatever they have to do to keep that from happening. See, this business, again, of... Having that back and forth dialogue in a school board meeting is something that could happen. It could happen. They could very easily say to themselves, you know what? We're going to vote tonight to pass a resolution that allows parents to ask questions and then we have to answer them on the spot. 
it might drag on. It might last a little longer than the allotted 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 40 minutes or however long they have for public comments. But that back and forth dialogue can remain civil, hopefully, without screaming and shouting. And they can actually have their questions answered. But as I've said in the past, that is not, that's not the modus operandi of, of these school districts. They are closed systems. They have to operate as closed entities, and they want parents to have nothing to do with them. But what they do to satisfy the parent and just give the parent a little taste of the carrot at the end of the stick is they'll have you know a parent group, or they'll have um, these other sort of side projects with parents to make it look as if the parents are involved in the actual decision-making process when, in fact, ladies and gentlemen, it's the illusion of participation. It's the illusion of input. These decisions have already been made. They come from the state government right down on top of everybody's heads, and then there's a charade that gets played at the local level to make it look like everybody's involved. We're all in this together. We want to communicate and be transparent and safety and safety and proactive transparent. They just use all of the word jargon, and then that's it. Eventually, somebody's foot ends up getting stepped on, and in this case, laws get broken. I love it. I absolutely love it. They got caught, and any time these scumbags get caught is a good day. So that's a victory, ladies and gentlemen. It should be celebrated. There's no doubt about it. This, however, is something that might not be celebrated. However, it could be, depending on how you look at it. Um, it's just more of the enemy exposing themselves and their true intent and the people who run these companies. This comes from frontpagemag.com, and it's titled, Pizza Hut Teaches Kids America is Built on Slavery and Genocide. So that's fun. A fast food chain that makes bad pizza wants to talk to your kids about white privilege. Uh, here we go. Daniel Greenfield, a Shillman journalist fellow at the Freedom Center, is an investigative journalist and writer focusing on the radical left and Islamic terrorism. Pizza Hut, unsatisfied with making kids fat, also wants to make them racist. It says, quote, the stale franchise chain has supplemented its menu of lightly charred cardboard covered in tasteless glops of something that a blind hobo might mistaken for cheese with racism. While Pizza Hut focuses on poisoning children with such horrible concoctions as cheeseburger crust pizza, fish and chips pizza, and sushi cream cheese pizza, the Pizza Hut Foundation is hard at work teaching students that America is racist and white people suck. The training materials intended for use in the classroom want teachers to ask 10-year-olds, quote, how often have you thought about your race in the last 24 hours? Aren't stories like this, however, just really getting repetitive and dumb? Um, I mean, they, they really are. Pizza Hut. It's, it's gone to this level now. I mean, they have to get these companies involved as much as humanly possible so that every turn that they make, it just ingrains in them a false message of history more radical ideology, and oh, by the way, buy our product and remind your parents to uh, order out tonight when, uh, when you get home. 
This stuff is insane. It says, quote, if demanding that a 10-year-old spend their time thinking about race sounds crazy, another Pizza Hut pamphlet with tips for, quote, talking to, talking to kids about race claims that by six months, babies notice racial differences and that four-year-olds sh show signs of racial bias. See, I'm, I'm going to stop with this article only because I've covered this before. This is a repetitive old um, research article that was done by a bunch of whack job leftists, and all they ended up doing, again, clearly here in this case, is a company picked up on that and decided to make their own materials because apparently Pizza Hut's having a hard time making ends meet as a company. So, yeah, I, don't, I really don't know what else to say. These companies are showing their hand one by one, and as far as I'm concerned, it's a good thing because now we know where to not go. Uh, yeah. I don't enjoy drinking a half a bottle of Pepto-Bismol after eating uh, Pizza Hut, so I'm sure I'm not alone in that regard, but there you have it. Here's another story out of Indiana, my next-door neighbor. Uh, this comes from the Gateway Pundit, and it's titled, Disturbing Leftist Activists Organize Sex Ed Summer Camps for 8- to 10-year-olds in Indiana. will teach, quote, using condoms on all insertables and explore sensations to discover what feels good. The kids are around, you might want to listen to this another time. Or expose them to this because, again, this kind of stuff is insane and they need to be aware. It says, quote, Just when you think the leftist sexualization of young children can't get any worse, some woke lunatic, usually masquerading as a teacher or expert of some sort, comes along. A leftist activist in, Indiana in Indianapolis, Indiana, rather, is hosting a sex ed summer camp that will teach 8- to 10-year-olds about woke sex ideology, transgender theory, and how to use condoms, among other disturbing things. The camp, which is being organized by self-proclaimed children's sexuality educator Ashley Robertson, is being advertised for children in grades 3 to 5, who can be as young as 7 years old. In other words, way too young for some adult who's not their parent to discuss their sexuality with them. And it continues... The summer camp is taking place apparently June 6th through the 10th from 8 to 5 p.m. 8 a.m. to 5 p.m.? Yikes. Uh, registration, $250. So, hey, that's all it, that's all it takes to uh, completely destroy your child, 250 bucks. And as I said on Gab, ladies and gentlemen, what good thing has ever come from a camp, let alone a summer camp? I'm sorry. Um, I know I'm going to get, you know, made fun of for this, but the fact is this, my approach on the summer camp stuff has always been passing your kids off to other people to raise them is not a good idea. Children very much look forward to summer. Keeping them busy throughout summer and having things to do isn't a bad idea. However, solitude and allowing for individual thought and creativity is also a very good thing. So this business of constantly bombarding children during summer with camps and clubs and things to do can be remarkably overwhelming and distracting. And frankly, it can be remarkably unhealthy. Um, that's my take. That's my two cents. I've never been a fan. That's just kind of the way that it is. But camps like this, where whack jobs 
decide to push their own sexual perversions on minors should tell everybody that, again, this is just a very specific level of pedophilia. It's just another level of it. That's all. It's another layer. You pull back another layer, and this exists. So yes, parents who fall in line with this kind of ideology are going to sign up their kids faster than you can possibly imagine, and the vast majority of sane individuals, of course, will stay away. That's all. So uh, nothing good ever happens at camp, and the kids who always go and get made fun of or something terrible happens to them, you know, it's, it's a life-changing experience for them. It alters them greatly, and I don't, uh, I don't see that getting better either. I don't see summer camps improving with time. You know, if you're not teaching them to build a fire, uh, learn how to live off the land, camp outside, shoot a gun, go fishing, you know, the basic stuff. But nope, they've got to put condoms on carrots and other vegetables in the produce section. Ugh, yuck. It's exhausting. The stupidity is so exhausting. Speaking of stupidity and exhausting, uh, it's that time of year, ladies and gentlemen. It is the time of the year for the American Educational Research Association's annual conference. I attended this nightmare of a conference and spoke at it two years ago, three years ago, three years ago, I believe, uh, 2019. What an educational experience it was, too, and not for the reasons that one might think, at least not for the reasons Amer the American Educational Research Association would think. Uh, I got a membership for them for that conference just so I could attend. It was educational in countless ways, basically because I was the only sane human being that was there. And I can say that because, honest to God, that was the case. Everybody else was a brainwashed goon. I didn't meet one person that had their wits about them. Not one. Well, that's not entirely true. I met one guy in a bar who was ex-military, and his wife was attending the conference because she was speaking there. He said she was a sane human being and not crazy. Uh, they were both conservatives, apparently, so that's cool. And then there was me, and then I assume that was about it. But what I wanted to do, as I've done this in the past, is I wanted to read some of the titles from the latest edition of the American Educational Research Journal and give you a taste as to what kinds of things are being published in the field of American education and research, allegedly. Now, we know that there's not any real research taking place. It's all whack job ideologies and um, just a colossal waste of time, by and large. And I'm sure, you know, a spattering or sprinkling of the word racism throughout just to, you know, stimulate everybody as much as humanly possible and uh, get the emotions flowing is, is going to be present and ever present without these, you know, throughout these titles here. So let me start off, and there's approximately nine of these titles. So here we go. Latest articles, again, from the American Educational Research Association. It says, quote, the first title is by, I'm not even going to pronounce their names. I can't even try. I'm not even going to do it. <clears throat> it's, uh, the first one is titled, I Just Didn't Want to Risk It. How Perceptions of risk motivate charter school choice among Latinx parents. Uh, I got nothing. 
But keep in mind, they're always wanting to create division with all of their articles and with all of their titles. And like I said, everybody's a racist and there's race throughout. Oh, look, another one. Here it's titled, quote, Separate Remains Unequal, Contemporary Segregation and Racial Disparities in School District Revenue. So it's a money issue now. Remember, they're racist and it's because of money. Here's the next one. It's titled, For Some and For All. Subgroup Entitlement Policies and Daily Opportunity Provision in Segregated Schools. Honest to shit, ladies and gentlemen, you'd think we were in the 1950s. But worse than that, I might add, because education rates were higher in the 1950s and the family structure was more sound in the 1950s, so I don't even know what this is. Um, here's the next one. Quote, are homegrown teachers who graduate from urban districts more racially diverse, more effective, and less likely to exit teaching? Hmm. Let me read that abstract. It says, quote, Teachers' preference to remain close to where they grew up is recognized as a defining feature of the teacher labor market. I, have a, I take exception to that first sentence. First of all, I view it as being remarkably unprofessional. If an individual graduates from a high school and then says to themselves, you know what, I want to go to college, and then I want to come right back and I want to teach in my old high school, that's a person I would never hire. Again, no offense to those that have done it. I'm just saying I would not hire that person. I know that there are different environments that view that on completely opposite ends of the spectrum. I happen to be in the camp that says that is not a professional behavior. That is not something that, um, that I would deem as some kind of a qualification to work inside of a building. I know I'm not alone in that regard, but whatever. Okay, that's the first sentence. Uh, here's the next one in the rest of the abstract. It says, using a unique data set from a large school district in the southeastern United States, I apply a series of within-school and within-student comparisons to assess the effectiveness of homegrown teachers who returned to teach in their home district. Discrete time survival analysis is then used to examine differences in when early career teachers exit the district, study results show that homegrown teachers make small but statistically meaningful improvements in student achievement in English language arts. They are more likely to identify as black compared with other beginning teachers and less likely to exit the district. Okay. Familiarity breeds contempt. Um, familiarity also breeds laziness, I might add, which is, again, one of the reasons why it's not, I would categorize it as this. Um, there are other words I could use, I suppose, but I would say it's the individual who doesn't want to expand their mind is the individual who returns to their old high school or old middle school or old elementary school to be a school teacher. They aren't interested in learning about a new environment altogether. So they just go back to what they perceive as being familiar, when in fact, by going back, perhaps the only thing that they're familiar with is the paint on the walls and not the actual people who are there. Uh, that's my two cents. Here's the next article. 
It's titled, Room for Improvement? Mentor Teachers and the Evolution of Teacher Pre-Service Clinical Evaluations. Ooh, let's read this abstract. Quote, The clinical teaching experience is one of the most important components of teacher preparation. Not anymore. Uh, Prior observational research has found that most effective mentors and schools with better professional climates are associated with better preparation for teacher candidates. No kidding. This isn't new. We test these findings using an experimental assignment of teacher candidates to placement sites in two states. Candidates who were randomly assigned to higher quality placement sites experienced larger improvements in performance over the course of clinical experiences as evaluated by field instructors, aka university instructors. The findings suggest that improving clinical placement procedures can improve the teaching quality of candidates. Uh, Yes, but please. And again, I'm not being cynical here. I'm simply saying that one of the things that they do when they're placing students is they want students to have a well-rounded experience. Unfortunately, now, with the mask-wearing, shot-taking, abuse of children, XYZ, these environments are more the same than they are different now. Abuse is rampant throughout, which means, theoretically, you could send them to the whitest, richest, Um, most affluent whatever, schools, and only those schools, and have them only observe in those schools, and assume that they're not going to encounter rampant abuses. Again, to assume that is absurd. They will receive, uh, you know, plenty of experience with rampant abuses within those environments. In fact, I've gone so far as to say that those are some of the most abusive environments that exist. It's the quiet, honed-in, private school that might have a chance at being ethically sound. But again, the die's been cast with the mask wearing and everything else. I, I just don't, I don't think any of these environments are, are well-rounded anymore. Not to mention, I should add this, the, the perceived notion of what professionalism is or is not. A lot of people, again, think that Having a 5G tower on the roof of a school and um, all the technology from here to Timbuktu means that they must be professional. And, oh, look at all the toys they have and look at this and look at that. When, in fact, they may have just fired a school teacher for telling the truth to their students about a historically accurate event. So are they really professional? See, you're never really going to know when you're on-site as a observing pre-service teacher in a clinical experience um, and in a student teaching, you know, required experience. You're, you're never really going to know what's really going on. You're going to get lots of different perceptions, but you, you have to almost work there for at least a year or two plus in order to find out what's really going on. So anyway, there's that. Here's the next article, and then there's only three after this. I won't read any more abstracts, I promise. It says, quote, The business of teaching and learning, institutionalizing equity in educational organizations through continuous improvement. That is just a word salad regurgitation of every buzzword I've ever heard in education. Um, I'm sure it's enlightening. Highly doubt it. 
The next one, the effects of early college opportunities on English learners. For the love of God, can we not create something new here? I have yet to hear an article or read any academic article about the abuses of mask wearing. We're two years into this charade. Two years in. I read these titles a year ago, and I thought to myself, okay, here we go. It's going to be all about mask wearing. I bet they're researching mask wearing. Nope. Nobody. They're not even touching it. Here's the next one. Quote, guns, schools, and democracy. Adolescents imagining social futures through speculative civic literacies. All right. Well, I have to read the abstract for this one. It says, quote, this article analyzes how guns emerged as both urgent topics of dialogue and common features of everyday life for 228 students and their teachers in six communities across the United States who participated in the Digital Democratic Dialogue, 3D project, a year-long social design I'm sorry, a year-long social design-based experiment aimed at foregrounding foregrounding youth voice and fostering connection across lines of geographic and ideological difference. We trace the myriad ways that guns literally and discursively shaped the multiple ecological context of the 3D project in order to detail youth socio-political learning and extend traditional models of civic education. We propose a paradigm of speculative civic literacies that privileges a collaborative push toward democratic integration and innovation over integration Oh my God, into existing civic and political structures. I tell you what, I think I just had a stroke. <clears throat> I think I'm having a stroke. Um, I'm certainly going to have a nosebleed later today when I think about that abstract one more time. They threw in every single, again, buzzword in education that you possibly could. The thing with abstracts, ladies and gentlemen, having written them, is that the idea is to make it crystal clear as to what it is you're doing. Unfortunately, there are advisors that will say things like, nope, make sure you throw in these words and make sure you throw in these words because people won't know what you mean. Little do they know that by adding those words, we really don't know what they mean. I have no idea what any of this means. Not a clue. Not a clue. And this is an actual published article in this journal. It's disgusting. God, this business. <laughs> this business is so gross. It's just so gross. It's just a word salad. It's a word salad abstract with a word salad article. There's no way I'd actually get through the actual article and make any sense of it. Okay, here's the last one, very last one. It says, quote, code switching, code switching, C-O-D-E, code switching and political strategy, the role of racial discourse in the coalition building efforts of charter management organizations. 
See, what did I tell you? They've just got to sprinkle racism everywhere. If they, if they can get it in eight out of nine articles, mission accomplished. If they can throw racial disparities and just sprinkle it on top of a dead body, then, well, that's it. It must have been racism, and racism is real. And Racism, racism. Th- th- this, ladies and gentlemen, by the way, the nightmare is over of me reading those, but this right here again continues to prove that the entire profession is operating on these kinds of articles. The people who write them are being influenced to write them. Uh, the people who are the editors of these articles are very carefully selected to make sure that they are pushing through these kinds of articles with regularity. As I have stated in the past, the only articles really that should be written right now in the field of education would have to do with the success of homeschooling, the mismanagement of the online education that took place among K-12 schools over the last two years, the rampant acceptability, if that's a word, of mask wearing, and child abuse across the board. The inability to read directions on the side of a box. Playing doctor and the criminal nature of playing doctor as a school official. These are the kinds of things that should be researched. The crimes, the perceptions of the people who work within these environments. Because here's what you will find that the vast majority of the people who work in these environments actually thought they were helping people. They actually thought that they were being responsible and saving lives of American youth and not trying to induce panic, but keep people on guard and blah, 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 and whatever other excuse that they would come up with. The things that I've just previously mentioned, that should be the only thing that is researched in this field of study to dig it out of the pit that it is in. But that's not going to happen. That's why, again, I wrote the book that I wrote last year. I wrote that book because I had a feeling that nobody was going to research it. And so I said, okay, to hell with writing an article about it and researching it and trying to get it published and waste my time. Just write a book about it, and then self-publish it, and let the chips fall where they may. That's really the only way now that the truth is getting out there. And I've, again, mentioned this before. The self-publishing avenue is the only way. If you attempt to go through one of these publishing avenues, like the American Educational Research Association, and try to get something published through here, you're dreaming. If it's even remotely accurate, you're absolutely dreaming. If it doesn't have the word racism again sprinkled on top, good luck. You're not going to get it published. They want a more divisive environment. They want a more unhealthy environment within these schools. And they wonder why people aren't learning or achieving. They They can't for the life of them figure it out. I think it's hilarious because they're shooting themselves in their own, in their own foot with one hand while they dig their own grave with the other, with a shovel in the other. It's amazing. They have no clue what they're doing. Brainwashing. It's a real thing. It's an actual real thing. Okay. 
Now, speaking of brainwashing, ladies and gentlemen, this takes me to the last thing. Another little history lesson here. And I enjoy history, but more importantly, I enjoy inaccurate history, not the garbage you read in American K-12 textbooks or college textbooks. Um, but it actually takes a little bit of digging, and then you'll find some really interesting stuff. So, uh, this was bouncing around the interwebs the other day, and I'm going to read it. So you're going to have to bear with me here. But it's titled, quote, Living in Hitler's Germany, a letter from Hans Schmidt of GANPAC, G-A-N-P-A-C, published in the Hoskins Report, December 1993. Richard Kelly Hoskins, publisher. So here we go. It says, quote, you asked for someone who had lived in Hitler's Germany to tell what it was like. Permit me someone who lived under the swastika flag from 1935 when the Tsar was reunited with Germany to 1945 to give a short answer. To be a boy or a girl at the time was wonderful. In the Hitler youth, the differences between Christian domina uh, denominations for the different German states didn't count. We all truly felt that we were members of one body of people, one nation. Youth hostels were opened all over the Reich, enabling us to hike from one beautiful town to another, seeing our fatherland. Every effort was made to strengthen our minds and bodies. Contrary to what is said today, we were encouraged to become free in spirit and not to succumb to peer or authority pressure. In peacetime, no military training was allowed by the Hitler Youth leadership. Scouting, yes. Incidentally, to snitch on our parents was frowned upon. At the very time when America's allies, the Soviets, destroyed most of the Christian churches in Russia and Ukraine, about 2,500 new churches were built in Germany. Not one Christian church was closed. It was the law that school and church had priority over service in the Hitler Youth. As, later, as late in the fall of 1944, the Waffen-SS barracks in Belarus supplied two buses to take youth to either the nearest Catholic or Protestant church every Sunday. To be a registered member of a Christian church did not prevent advancement in the National Socialist Party. Germany was National Socialist, but free enterprise flourished during the entire Hitler years. No company was nationalized. No small businessmen was stopped from opening up his own store. Uh, I myself worked during the war for a company that can only be called part of international capitalism. If you owned shares, nobody confiscated them, like the Allies did in 1945. The accomplishments of the Nazis were incredible. Starting without money and with six million unemployed, a third of the workforce, they constructed the entire German Autobahn road network in a short span of six years, almost without corruption, while seeing to it that the new road system did not unnecessarily destroy either the German landscape or wildlife habitats in forests. Two years after the NS were elected to power, National Socialists, uh, conditions were so improved that workers had to be hired in nearby friendly countries to help alleviate the workers' shortage in Germany. Germany was booming while Britain, France, and the U.S. were in the depths of the Depression. To help the workers get cheap transportation, the Volkswagen was designed and a factory was built for their manufacture when the war started. 
Also, for the common people, villages of small single-family homes were erected. The monthly payments were also so low that almost anyone could afford his own house. In Hitler's Germany, there were no homeless, no beggars. Crime was almost non-existent because habitual criminals were in concentration camps. All this was reported in the newspapers and was known by everybody. The German press during the Third Reich had fewer taboos than the American press today. The only taboo can think, I can think of involved around Hitler, and during the war, there was a law that prohibited defeatism, quote-unquote. This was because of the negative role the German press played in the German defeat of 1918. It continues. It says, it bears remembering that the European economic community was first coined by the Third Reich government. I remember many articles, both pro and con, about the subject. One should also not forget that during the war, at least 7 million foreign nationals, nearly 10% of the population, worked in Germany, either as volunteer workers, Dutch, Danes, French, Poles, Ukrainians, come to mind, or as forced laborers or as prisoners. I know of no instance where foreigners were attacked or molested, much less killed, because they were foreigners. Speaking of the press, I have an article from 1943 in my possession that spells out how necessary friendships how necessary friendship is between the Germans and the Russian peoples. Between 1933 and 1945, there was tremendous emphasis on culture. Theaters flourished. The German movie industry produced about 100 feature films per year, of which not one was anti-American. Only 50 of them can be considered pure propaganda movies. Some of the best classical recordings still existent were made in Hitler's Germany. Actors from all over Europe, but mainly from France, Sweden, and Italy, were stars in German movies. Germany always loved sports, and there was no lack of opportunity to partake in any sport one liked. The 1936 Berlin Olympics was merely a showcase of what transpired all over the Reich. In a book on these, Olympic is on these Olympics issues by the Hitler Youth that is still in my possession, Jesse Owens is shown several times and mentioned favorably. During the Schmeling boxing fights, we kids all knew of Joe Lewis, the Brown Bomber. Nowhere did I ever read derogatory remarks about other races. Certainly the accomplishments of Germany and the Germans were given prominence similar to the ad nauseum statements of today that the U.S. is the land of the free, etc. In my 10 years in the Hitler Youth, actually eight since I obviously couldn't attend while a soldier, the Jews were never mentioned. Other sports that gripped our attention were flying. They were Hitler Youth flying, there were Hitler Youth flying training with our own sailplanes. Car races, British and Italian drivers dominated, and riding. Frequently, I asked about gun control during the Hitler era. Claims are made that Hitler could take power because he disarmed the German people. That is nonsense. In Germany, gun ownership was never as prevalent as it is in America. I would say that for hundreds of years, one needed a gun license in order to keep a weapon. On the other hand, my father owned an old pistol clandestinely, about which we children knew, and there were gun clubs all over the Reich. Furthermore, Germany was always a country with many excellent gunsmiths. It is doubtful 
that they could stay in business if the laws were too stringent. I would surmise that while Germany was Germany, before it was liberated by the Allies, quote unquote, gun ownership probably was far more widespread than, than is acknowledged today. Laws on the books were mainly to give the police a handle to arrest criminals with guns, not the ordinary citizen. Incidentally, just as Hitler had for, forbidden so-called punishment exercises in the army, the brutal methods still employed in the American army, so had he forbid, forbidden the use of clubs by the police. He considered it demeaning to the German people. Finally, this. I don't believe I'll ever see again a people as happy and content as were the great majority of Germans under Hitler, especially in peacetime. Certainly some minorities suffered, some uh, parliamentary politicians because they couldn't play their political games, the Jews because they lost their power over Germany, the gypsies because during the war they were required to work, and crooked union bosses because they lost their parasitical positions. To this day, I believe that the happiness of the majority of a people is more important than the well-being of a few spoiled minorities. In school, there should be emphasis on promoting the best and the intelligent, as was done in Germany during the Hitler years, a fact that contributed after the war to the rapid German reconstruction. That Hitler was loved by his people, there can be no question. Even a few weeks before the war's end and his death, although even that's questionable, um, he was able to drive to the front and mingle among the combat soldiers with only minimum security. None of the soldiers had to unload their, unload their weapons before meeting with the Fuhrer, as was required when President Bush met with American soldiers during the Gulf War. Germany under Hitler was quite different from what the media would have you believe, unquote. So it's been covered at length here, ladies and gentlemen, that the propaganda is always thick and that real history does exist. You just have to find it. And again, it brings up the perfect example, again, of false equivalency, which should constantly be a sort of blanket or umbrella statement. And if you've listened to this podcast, you've heard me say it on numerous occasions. You cannot have both examples. You cannot have this constant narrative of one person is evil all of the time. That's the way it is. Don't question it. No, by the way, if you do, we're going to destroy your reputation and fire you from your job and XYZ. And then at the exact same time, you have this telling from an individual who is actually there. So it's one or the other. It can't be both. And as you've probably picked up on today, in particular with what's going on geopolitically, everybody is Hitler now again. That's come back up. Hitler, Hitler, Hitler. It's, it's just, it's mentioned so many times. It's disgusting, and it should do one thing and one thing only in the mind of a critical thinker. It should raise serious suspicions about history and what you perceive to be true. So with all of that said, ladies and gentlemen, never stop unlearning. Always keep learning. Kill your television. And I'll catch you on Friday. Take care. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.